I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Up next, a documentary that first aired in October. Here's Matt Galloway. They were three strangers from vastly different worlds, united in a single mission to rescue Hazara refugees from Afghanistan trapped in Indonesia. Some had been living in limbo for as much as a decade. This is the story of that remarkable collaboration between a former refugee from Afghanistan, desperate to bring others like himself to Canada. I found sponsors for a number of refugees in Indonesia, but we did not have money. So I reached out to Miriam. A retired Australian academic... I do see my role as helping with a kind of underground railroad of refugees. What I can do is help with money and make life easier for people. Say yes. And a Canadian refugee advocate. There was a moment where I was like, who is this person? You are funding what? (laughs) That's a lot of people. This is generosity I've never seen. Aliza Siegel's documentary is called Say Yes, and just a warning, it does include a description of suicide. My name is Shams Irfan. I am 24 years old. Shams. His name means son. I was born and raised in a very remote village in eastern part of Afghanistan. In 2014, Shams was just 15 years old and worked at a school that taught English. On a trip to Kabul to buy school supplies, members of the Taliban pulled him off a bus, accused him of being a traitor. The Taliban started slapping me on the face and calling me infidel. They were calling me the servant of Westerners. They were calling me opposite and traitor. I was shaking in fear, and I became speechless, and I was 100% convinced that I was about to be shot dead. A stranger, a woman seated beside him, stood up and yelled that they were mistaken, that he was her son. She saved his life. Shams knew he could never go home. He went into hiding. His family sent money, and with the help of paid smugglers, he fled from Afghanistan to India to Malaysia. From Malaysia, he sailed by boat to Indonesia. There he hoped to find refugee status and a safe haven. Instead, he spent a year on the streets of Jakarta. I slept uh, under the tent. I did not have access to water, to food. I would uh, wash the plates of the vendors who were selling 
local food on their cart and at the end of the night they would give me some food to eat. It was 2015. He had no choice but to surrender himself to a refugee detention center. They confiscated all my belongings, my clothes, my cell phone, and they checked all my body and gave me a pairs of sleepers. Shams quickly understood that detention meant prison, surrounded by barbed wire and armed guards. When I walked in the prison, when I walked through those massive, solid iron gates, I found myself among over 300 people detained there. Most had been there for years. I was shocked. Indonesian refugee detention centers were established as holding tanks to prevent asylum seekers from reaching Australia and other countries. Shams slept in a cramped cell on a concrete floor. There was little food or water. We had only one toilet in the block. For 180 people, we had only one public washroom. There was no running water. We would receive running water for an hour a day. And each person had five minutes, sometimes three minutes. Refugees were not allowed to go to school, not allowed to work. Shams taught English to fellow inmates. He smuggled in cell phones for himself and others by bribing guards with sugar. And he wrote with a vengeance. Writing became my escape. Shams became increasingly politically active. He fought for refugee rights and organized demonstrations. For the first time in many years... Uh, a in 2017, when a group of Indonesian journalists came to report on conditions inside the camp. The living conditions of Shams spoke openly about the long list of injustices. So that day, I spoke with these journalists. Prison authorities were furious. One of the senior officers of the prison guards grabbed my hand and slapped my face for telling the journalists the truth. He took me to his office with his friends, they beat me up. Shams was placed in solitary confinement. He lost track of time. I thought there was no way to escape. I lost all my hope. I thought I would, I would be in the prison forever. I felt that I don't belong to this world. The level of hopelessness was mounting every day. And I felt that I was left behind. In September 2018, after more than three years in detention, Shams was transferred to the Batam refugee shelter. Conditions were better, but he still wasn't free to come and go as he wished. It was time for me to go to school and complete my high school, but I was in the prison camp, counting every second. On his cell phone, Shams scoured the earth for any country that would take him. And praying for an end to my imprisonment. He tried Australia and New Zealand, and he used social media to establish contacts 
with potential sponsors in other countries, including Canada. My name is Stephen Watt. I work at the University of Toronto, and I have a not-for-profit called Northern Lights Canada. By day, Stephen Watt works in communications. But since 2016, he has devoted himself to refugees. He connects those hoping to enter Canada with potential Canadian private sponsors. He then guides both parties through the application process. I was communicating with Stephen on Facebook, on Messenger. The tone was polite, but with an edge of need. He knew that if he didn't connect with Canadians, he was probably going to be stuck there for another decade. He didn't know me. He never saw my picture. He never met me. For a long time, he, like a lot of refugees in Indonesia, was sort of betting on Australia taking them in. And then 2018, I think the realization as years passed, people there for five years by that point, realization started to dawn that it wasn't happening. That was a real low point for refugees and probably a low point for Shams as well when refugees realized, I don't think Australia is taking us. I think we're stuck here. And you actually had a whole spate of suicides, young kids hanging themselves in washrooms. It was around 2 a.m. in the morning. A friend rushed into my room and told me that our friend committed suicide. With bare feet, I walked into the refugee yard. I found my friend hanging from the rope. And I held him up so he could breathe in my arms. But he, he was so heavy. And a friend brought a knife and he cut the rope. And I fell down together with him. I think it was kind of a year of awakening in the refugee community that they weren't going anywhere. And it happened to time with this same time that we started getting involved in sponsoring people from Indonesia. So I would like to think that there were some suicides that were averted because there's now a hope of coming to Canada. At least there's a hope. At least there's something. He encouraged me to continue writing and expose the, the way that refugees were being treated. As Shams searched for a sponsor, he wrote and wrote letters to refugee advocates in Australia and around the world, posts on his Facebook page. He wrote for international publications and for the Archipelago, an online literary magazine he co-founded with other refugees in Indonesia. He always used his pseudonym, Irfan Dana. It took two and a half more years but finally, a woman in Burlington, Ontario, moved by Shamsa's story, agreed to sponsor him. In March of 2022, more than eight years after he arrived in Indonesia, his application was approved. When the plane was coming to land, I could not believe my eyes that I see Toronto, that I am here. When the Canadian immigration officer stamped my permanent residency pepper and told me, welcome to Canada. I felt human. I felt I was reborn. And eight years 
of detention, eight years of loneliness, eight years of hopelessness, and eight years of physical and mental torment comes to an end. For the first time, like in eight years, I was not scared of telling my real name and everybody was now calling me by my name, Shams. Welcome, Shams. That was a beautiful moment. It helped me feel protected there, that I would not be hurt any longer. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We're in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Shams spent his first 10 months in Canada with his sponsor family. He earned a coveted position as a Penn Canada writer-in-residence at Toronto's George Brown College. And he began to advocate, alongside Stephen, on behalf of other refugees hoping to come to Canada. All I needed now was to form more groups of sponsorships. I talked to a few people in our neighbourhood And they said, we can sign their application. We can be sponsors, but we don't have money. Enter Miriam Fain in Australia. My name's Miriam Fain. I'm a retired English language teacher and academic. And I've been supporting or working with immigrants and refugees all my life, basically. My mother was a Jewish refugee from Germany who came to New Zealand in 1939 with her extended family. And I've known all my life how lucky I am. To me, it goes without saying that we need to support people who are fleeing with their lives. And I feel a compulsion to do what I can to support refugees. So currently, I'm. In 2021, Miriam's elderly parents died. They left their home in Melbourne to Miriam and her two siblings. Honestly, at this stage in my life, I don't need the money. And there was really no reason for me to to bank this money. I needed to find something worthwhile to do with it. And it was just fortuitous that it was at that moment that I began to find out about the people in Indonesia and became aware that one of the issues in sponsoring people is that people were stuck, that people in Canada were willing to sponsor them, but they were finding it hard to raise all the money. So at some moment I thought, righto, I'll give the money for sponsorships. And that's what I've done. A three-way partnership was born. It is kind of weirdly like a a, a three-way romance between, you know, in this case, a gay Canadian, a very young, accomplished Hazara writer, and a, a Jewish retired professor from Australia. Why Canada? Because Canada, for better or worse, has been the country that has been most welcoming. Um, And Canada has a private sponsorship agreement program that allows this to happen. I'm just checking my spreadsheet. I think I've helped about 190 individuals or families. 
So I've given a $10,000 to the individuals and $20,000 mostly to the families. Uh, the reason I do that is because I don't want to be in the business of judging who's wor more worthy than others. And I wanted the money to go as far as I could. So I figured the 10000 Australian was enough to give people a leg on. And I'll run online fundraisers for people to find the balance, but I don't want to contribute it directly myself. Miriam's generosity is definitely a game changer because six years ago, you could just sort of start a GoFundMe. and Raising money say, hey, through online fundraising drives fundraising isn't as easy as it used to be. If it's a big family, we can be talking $60,000, $70,000. Where does that money come from? It can't come from the refugee. That's a, a rule. So this is where somebody like Miriam Fain is a game changer. I haven't seen a donor ever do what she's done. It is deeply personal for me, um, and it always has been. My mother never got over her experience, really, of growing up as a Jewish child in Hitler's Germany and of coming to New Zealand as a 12-year-old. She always felt alienated. And so, you know, in many ways, I have taken on my mother's feeling of responsibility for other people in that situation. There's another factor I want to mention, which is that my own identity as a Jewish person working with Muslim people, and I've been very clear to people that that's my own background, and it's been important to me to, to establish the commonalities, not the differences. And I also feel a desire to make the world a better place. Um, I was brought up to believe that if you see something bad happen and you stand by and you don't respond to it, then, you know, you are to some degree implicated. And so I feel that what's happening in Indonesia, as an Australian, um, I feel deeply compromised by the way successive Australian governments have acted over 20 years towards refugees. So it is the personal is political. I'm a child of the 60s. The money Miriam sends through Shams and Stephen is a fraction of her support. She sends money to many other refugees directly. Some are destined for Canada, Australia, and the United States. Others have found their way to Europe and Turkey. The requests are often overwhelming. And, and, you know, not everybody's honest. One thing that happens is that everybody's incredibly urgent and the Taliban's go to catch their relatives and kill them if they don't get sponsored immediately or their mother's got cancer. Or This week, everybody's sister's been um, kidnapped by the Taliban and I'm very careful with those. I think I grapple with the expectations people have and their own anxieties and their desire to project their anxiety onto me. So it's the sort of, you know, you've got to do something today, you've got to do something today, you've got to do something today. And it's very hard regulating that. But most of the people are honest. I, I know I've been scammed once or twice, but I'm pretty confident the majority of that money has gone to people who need it. When I send out a note and say, OK, there is another guy and we, he has the sponsors, and everything is ready, and we're waiting for money. Can you help? She never said no. As long as I can find the money, and as long as there's someone who wants to get out of Indonesia, I'm happy to help them with that. That's my priority. I'm not setting myself up to be some kind of saint. I like handing out the money. It's a way, as Stephen and I both agree, it's a very good way of making a difference very quickly. So as long as we can, we will.
so much hatred in the world is happening now. So much pain is unfolding in the world. And when I reach out to Miriam and say, this refugee needs money, she says, yes, I will send. I would be shocked. Governments and big organizations with a lot of money do not do what she does. Miriam asks only that those she helps send photos of themselves in their new countries. Some who've made it to Australia have come to thank her in person, gifts in hand. I love a lot of the young refugees in a motherly way, and I feel like I want to protect them, like a sort of mother hen. In Hazara culture, you call people by a title, not by their names. I get called auntie, but mostly I get called mother or mum. And it's lovely. I only have one child. I love being a mother. So being able to extend my mothering to a whole bunch of people who need me is is fantastic. And she relishes the videos that Stephen posts online of new arrivals at Toronto's Pearson Airport. One of the things I said at the beginning was people said to me, oh, you want to be anonymous, don't you? And when I thought about it, um, I thought, no, I don't want to be anonymous. It's very important to me that I get to know the people that I'm helping and that they get to know me. So I don't want to be seen as a crazy old lady with too much money. And I don't want to see the refugees as poor, benighted victims. It's important to me that I see them in terms of their capabilities. And that's one of the things I see in Shums is someone who has developed a strong sense of agency in very, very negative situations. As you can hear, it's very complicated. It's not just a matter of writing a check, writing a check, writing a check. The complications involved are to do with who has the money, who has the agency, who has the voice, who makes the decisions. I'm the one who decides who's worthy, and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy working with people like Shums and Stephen, because they help take that responsibility off me. I reached out to many organizations, and they turned down my request to sponsor my family. Shams's own siblings and their families fled Afghanistan shortly after the Taliban returned to power in 2021. They have been stuck in limbo in Pakistan since. A local Toronto church agreed to sponsor them. But Shams needed close to $70,000. He hesitated and then approached Miriam. So when he said to me, do you think you could help my family? And he was very tentative. I said, of course. She said, you know, You help other people. I want to help you as well. Their application has now been approved. Shams hopes to finally be reunited with them in Canada next spring. Yeah, I don't don't follow the the rules that I set (laughs) up. Why last time you didn't come to that? uh, On Friday evenings, Shams and a group of other former refugees, mostly young men who made it to Toronto, gather in Stephen's backyard. Over pizza and drinks, they talk about who will arrive when, 
where to look for sponsors, how to raise money. By the way, guys, my picture. Are you guys following the? I hope that one day. Shams is now studying part time at the University of Toronto. He hopes to one day become a human rights lawyer. Every day that I can save somebody, I make up the time that I lost there. I have no idea how long this is going to continue. I finished the house money last month. I'll have to keep trying to find more money. And if I can't, then I'll have to stop. I mean, I'm fine money where I can. Another friend of mine died and he divided his house among 12 friends. So I, I will get another hundred and something thousand dollars. And I said to him before he died, you know, I'm going to give it to the Afghans. And he said, and I said, too bad, Ken, you leave it to me. I do with it what I want. So um, I, I squared it with him to some degree. And so that'll help. But I mean, a hundred thousand doesn't go very far. That's 10 people. One thing I want to say to Miriam that one day one of these peoples that you have helped and that you will help will do exactly what you do. It could be me, it could be somebody else. And that her legacy of helping will live on. Too many people in the world go around saying no for all sorts of reasons. And to be able to say yes to someone is one of the nicest things in the world. To be able to say to someone, yes, we can help. That documentary was produced by Aliza Siegel with CBC's Audio Documentary Unit and Liz Hoth, the documentary editor at The Current. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.